This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I am I co-host the show with, with Rob Connybeer, and Rob is the managing director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties. So we, we usually broadcast from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco, but I'm very lucky to be on campus today on a beautiful day near the end of the semester in Philadelphia. So it's a huge pleasure. The idea, in general, the idea behind Launchpad is that we host entrepreneurs on the show and we dig into the details of launching and growing a business in the hopes of identifying tools, principles, concepts, methods, tricks that can allow you to increase your chances of success as an entrepreneur. And so Rob and I like to get into it, talk to our guests about the current challenges they're facing, and then we look for opportunities to underscore things that might be useful to you. You, our audience, are probably in one of three categories. Some of you are yourselves entrepreneurs, and this stuff should be really relevant to you. And some of you are thinking about making the plunge, and we really do hope to give you a realistic window into the world of entrepreneurship. And then probably, honestly, most of you are just interested in what's cool out there and new in the world of business. And we hope to make the show interesting for you as well. So we have a really special show this week. Um, I'm the... As I, as I say in my intro, I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. And one of the things that we do is we host a startup challenge at the Wharton School, which is the culmination of most of a year, an academic year, that we that uh, is, is aimed at guiding student-led ventures, student-founded and led ventures, uh, through the process of, of establishing their, their ventures. All of this culminates... On a on a Friday, it happens to be next week. Uh, our startup challenge, and we have out of out of more than almost two hundred entrants to the startup challenge. Uh, we have eight semifinalists for who will present next week, and I'm lucky enough today to have all eight as guests on my sh- on my show. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to hear from all eight. These are going to be rapid fire interviews in which we get a window into a, a venture right near the the beginning of of its of its path of its journey. And so, we hope that these will be super interesting. And so to start off the show, I'm really lucky to be joined in the studio by Lulu G, who's the co-founder and CEO of Period Pain-Free. Lulu, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Carl. All right, full disclosure, how many classes did you take from me? I've probably taken all the classes you offered, so three or four. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so uh, fortunately, I remembered your name. <laughs> Yeah, Lulu has been an uh, enthusiastic student in several of my courses in our EMBA program, our executive MBA program. And uh, so, Lulu, let's get started. Give us the elevator pitch for Period Pain-Free. Sure. So Period Pain-Free is a telehealth platform personalizing evidence-based herbal medicine for chronic women's health conditions. And we're starting with dysmenorrhea, women's period pain. All right. So... uh, 
tell us, geez, there's a whole lot to to back out of that. So evidence-based. Well, actually, let's start with the problem. So so let's focus in, in on, wow, we can actually say this, the pain point. Yes, yeah, the was. literal pain point. So my journey to period pain-free is actually deeply personal. About two years ago, I went off hormonal birth control pills. And for the first time in my life, literally couldn't move my body for two to three times, two to three days a month when I was on my period. The cramps felt like someone was taking a sharp dagger and stabbing me repeatedly in the uterus. And then there was headaches, bloating, fatigue. I mean, menstrual pain is up to over a dozen different symptoms. And I realized I wasn't alone. Um, It's something that impacts up to 90% of women, and there's very limited current solutions out there that don't cause harm to our long-term health. All right, so this is a literal pain point, and often one of the in in the vernacular of startups, we say, "Well, have you got a vitamin pill or have you got a painkiller?" So, what was your insight into how you might be able to address this 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 pain point? Well, so I went to my doctor, and she essentially told me you could go back on birth control, or you, I could prescribe you prescription level painkillers. But I don't really think that's good for you to start this young in your age. Or I could take painkillers, but we know painkillers lead to long-term health side effects. And so luckily for me, my grandfather actually ran a hospital in China, and he connected me to Dr. Xia Hongshen, who's one of China's leading experts on the female endocrine system and Chinese herbs. He's written over 100 papers, and he's now one of our advisors. So long story short, Dr. Xia did an intake assessment on me and prescribed me a personalized blend of Chinese herbs. And literally the next month after I drank this herbal formula, the majority of my symptoms went away. Uh, It was almost a miracle. And then all of my girlfriends started asking me for the period um, tonics, as they called it at the time. And that's when I teamed up with a good friend of mine, Dr. Nicole Glaith, to find the research, the science, if you will, to back up what was happening in the formulas Dr. Shah prescribed. All right. So... If we just put on, if I put on my skeptics hat, which you know I've done a few times mm-hmm. with your your venture, um, you know the most the most widely the the most reliable result in in uh, in healthcare research is the placebo effect. So you can get incredible results from placebo. So how do you know that wasn't placebo? And when you say evidence based, what is the standard of evidence? Yeah. So. Um Dr. Nicole Glaith actually surveyed 138 clinical trials, which serve as the basis for our Chinese medicine personalization and treatment strategy. Mm-hmm. Of that, 40 specific clinical trials show the efficacy of Chinese herbal formulas for dysmenorrhea specifically, and it resulted in an 87 to 100% rate of efficacy with results lasting up to three months post-treatment. And it's- Go ahead. Oh, and so um, essentially that's the basis of how we personalize and our treatment strategy. And we're really excited to share that we're now live in beta. And of the women who've tried our formula so far, 93% have reported incredible results after the first month. All right. So tell us how it works. What is the actual user experience? Sure. So users start on our website, periodpainfree.com, where they complete a HIPAA-compliant self-assessment. And it's not just 
just like a five fun question, um, but it's actually a very detailed health assessment asking personal questions such as the color of your discharge and um, digestive health and so forth. Based on the results of this health assessment, um, currently Dr. Nicole Glaith reviews all of the results and determines the optimal formula, which is then shipped monthly on a subscription basis. And when you say optimal formula, what is it she's deciding? What are the variables that she can mess with? Sure. So we look at not only just symptoms Mm -hmm. um, that women are experiencing, the severity of the pain, but also the underlying state of health according to Chinese medicine diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's how she goes about determining the formula. And the way the formulas work is primarily they lower inflammation in the body, which Mm -hmm. is an underlying trigger of the pain, and also help with hormonal uh, imbalance and uterine spasms, which causes the cramp specifically. Mm -hmm. And then and uh, give us the details of how the how the treatment's administered, how many times, in what form, that sort of thing. Yeah. Sure. So they are in a concentrated tincture bottle, and our tinctures are actually about 10 to 20 times more potent than other herbal supplements on mm-hmm. the market, and that's why they work, essentially. And so they're taken about the week before um, bleeding starts, yeah. and or for women who have irregular cycles, they can also be taken once bleeding actually starts and she starts to feel the symptoms. And they're taken just once? Uh, They're taken repeatedly over the course of that week. So you finish a whole bottle of 10 grams of herbs in that week. And where does this, where do, where does Chinese medicine currently fall in the regulatory landscape today? Sure. So we are um, today regulated as an herbal and nutritional supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we are, um, given that what we're doing is evidence-based, we are looking at NIH grants and other sources of funding that would enable us to do clinical trials and studies in the future, in addition to our uh, consumer feedback to really demonstrate um, that this works and it's based on science. So... In, in until you're there, just for the other entrepreneurs who are considering uh, supplements mm-hmm. and 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 other treatments that are not FDA approved in terms of efficacy, what kinds of claims can can you make? So the claims are really primarily around what the herbs have been shown to do, the effect mm-hmm. that they've been shown to have on the body. We cannot make any direct claims that this will cure you of X, Y, and C. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is showcase um, testimonials from women who have experienced our products. And really, that's part of, other than selling the product, part of the mission of Period Pain-Free is really about education and empowerment. Because today in the U.S., 46% of women are actually scared to tell our employers about our menstrual symptoms. Mm. And so when we call in sick to work, and we know today that up to a quarter of women call in sick because of period pain, we usually blame it on something like a headache or upset stomach because it's so taboo and it's seen um, it's not okay to say, oh, we're experiencing this level of pain. Mm-hmm. And so we really want to spark a conversation and more awareness of women in our bodies and our cycles. So actually, if you're curious and learning more about your body and your menstrual health, you can go on our website, periodpainfree.com, take the health assessment, and get targeted content and uh, insights about your health without ever purchasing the product. Yeah. So let's go back to the, you gave us the origin story. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing at the time and and how you decided that you were going to make the plunge and 
I mean, okay, you're you're having pain, and so what's your response? You decide to start a company, right? So, <laughs> no, so give, it was a long like, journey. Okay, so give us a little bit of that. Of, uh, yeah, because that sure. seems sort of like a long journey. Oh, yes. To, yeah. um, well, I had a very safe and cushy job. Um, so I was head of change and transformation. Before that, I was a management consultant. Um, so I was working at Saks Fifth Avenue and the parent company, Hudson's Bay. And I had just run the um, some M&A integration projects. It was uh, I mean, it, it was safe in terms of a steady corporate career. And so the, as long as retailing doesn't go go away. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. We're seeing the retail right. acropolis now right. in 2019. So perhaps this was the less risky choice. Good move. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it was really tough initially to think about leaving behind a six-figure salary, a nice office with a view, a team, a budget, all of those things, and to really put my own savings on the line to build this out. Um, Because essentially, we were bootstrapped um, the entire first year, even just doing the research, building the prototypes, getting the initial users, building the website. And we're really now just starting our first outside round of fundraising. Mm So So, I think if this wasn't something that I personally believe needed to exist in the world, it mm -hmm. would have been impossible for me to take that plunge. Yeah. So uh, give give our listeners some advice on this question. How how long, in retrospect, how long would you hold on to your day job while you're incubating an an opportunity like this? Were you able to make significant progress while while keeping your job? Oh, and by the way, I believe you were doing an MBA at the same time. Yeah, it was impossible. <laughs> it was literally impossible to come to school every other weekend, the full course load with professors like Kent Smetters right. and starting a business. So Lulu is an excellent student, by the way. I, no, I, I'm... I'm Only in your courses. (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, you fooled me. Um, So I think it really depends on um, each individual situation. Luckily for me, I had built up a level of savings that I could, um, and a 401k that I could liquidate, and I could use that money to fund us in the beginning. Um, And thank you, Justin. I have a very loving, supportive husband. But I think if I didn't have that um, safety net built up, it would have been very difficult. And if I wasn't doing the EMBA at the same time, I probably would have tried to stay at my day job and get further along before taking the plunge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always a tough, a tough call because you, you really need to be all in at some point, but it's a, it's a big risky leap. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what, what anticipating you're now, you've got the product available for Mm -hmm. sale. You have figured out formulation. You have some key partners. What, do you think are the key thing? What are the key, let's just ask you? What are the key things you're telling your investors that are your next milestones that you need funding? Yeah, for? so we are um, pure pain free is actually um, a beta name. We're launching our full brand um, website and optimized experience later this year, mm-hmm. and uh, essentially the funding is to build out our website health assessment for marketing, um, and essentially our vision for the future is. Peripane is really just the first of many products to Mm. come. We envision building a modern lifestyle brand and portfolio of products that could serve her needs. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that given that you seem to have solved the supply chain issues, the fulfillment issues, uh, the efficacy challenges, uh, acquisition seems like the key question. What are your ideas for how to acquire the customer? 
So we believe it's all about um, content and education. Given that this topic is still very much taboo today, it's how do we build a safe community to talk about it? And with regards to that, we're onboarding women in wellness content creators. So if there are any of you out there listening, we're seeking naturopath doctors, nutritionists, yoga instructors, and others in this space to join our community. You can email us, team at periodpainfree.com. All right. Well, Lulu, you did what I was just going to do, which is point our listeners again to your website, which I know is just a placeholder now, but it is nicely descriptive, periodpainfree.com. So thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Carl. And actually, we have a special for Launchpad listeners. If you go on periodpainfree.com and use the code LAUNCHPAD10, you can get 10% off your first purchase. So thank you all. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Today, we're talking to eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge. I'm very lucky to be joined now in the studio by Justin Swerbel, who's the co-founder and CTO at Verston. And joining us on the line is Michael, is Michael Chipola, co-founder and CEO at Verston. So, Justin, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having us. And Michael, thanks for joining us on the line. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Michael, we're going to get you started on the line. So give us the elevator pitch for Verston. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So Verston actually uh, started out as, as a pretty uh, out of left field project. Uh, Justin and I were working on a cybersecurity firm, uh, a little consultancy up, uh, up in Boston, actually, as a summer project. Uh, when we were introduced to uh, uh, Joshua, our co-founder, who's actually an ex-Royal Marine. He served in the uh, in the UK military for about five years, then about another five years in the private sector, uh, mainly with Aegis overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, while we were working on this project, it started as uh, kind of a joint private security uh, and cybersecurity venture. He told us a bit about his experiences working in private security overseas in dangerous and hostile environments. Uh, and what he told us is that threat intelligence, which is basically any information you can imagine about uh, uh, in a hostile environment, right, previous incidents, uh, risk profiles of other people in the area, uh, he said threat intelligence is lacking. Uh, so much to the point that it, it's completely stuck in the 20th century. Essentially, when an incident occurs, let's say an IED goes off, a particularly bad, uh, a bad example, um, uh, it's not really shared. And uh, more importantly, uh, even within a company, often it's not saved. Uh, an incident report is filed, it's put away, and that data is never used. Uh, and so Verstan really started as a way to share that data uh, specifically for security firms uh, to gain insights from that data as we accumulate more of it, and overall to keep uh, people in dangerous environments as informed as they can possibly be when they're out in the field through a mobile platform. All right. Well, let me pass the baton to Justin. How, how does this actually work? Yeah, so so our, our platform uh, called Atlas uh, has sort of three main aspects to it. So the first, uh, which which kind of M- M- Michael touched on for the most part, is the the data reporting and, and sharing. Mm-hmm. So uh, users and, and uh, private security operators in the field uh, will have Atlas on their phone. They they can input an incident report report of whatever's happening in the field, and that will be uh, inputted into you know their sort of client and their team's management system. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, and, and maybe more importantly, that that information is is shared uh, and distributed among uh, the other companies and teams operating in the area. 
And then a uh, second aspect of this is then utilizing the data to kind of figure out where more dangerous areas, uh, high-risk areas in, in their areas of operations are based on incidents and the sort of malicious groups, um, so the sort of analytics on this data. And then the third sort of aspect uh, of the platform is uh, command and control. So basically a, a team leader, a chief security operator uh, for some, some company can uh, manage and track the, the team members in the field. Mm -hmm. And they'll be alerted if you know maybe someone's in the area of an incident occurring or someone goes into a unnecessarily dangerous area. Um, and al that allows for increased communication among the team and kind of creating a, a, a plan if things go wrong. Yeah. So I could think of Atlas then as just in simple terms, as effectively a shared map where we can all share the information about stuff that exists, presumably spatially geolocated in some way. Um, and so it becomes this kind of shared workspace. Did I get that right in terms of figuring out, sharing information about threats that are in the field? Yeah, I think that that's that's a big, big all right. Aspect of it. So, so Michael, let me turn back to you. Um, it's hard enough to get one company to to buy your product. D for this to work, don't you get have to get a bunch of companies to buy into your product? Tell us how you thought about that and and how you plan to crack that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a fantastic question, and definitely uh, probably our primary concern when it uh, when we're talking about our our initial target market. Uh, but fundamentally, we have kind of two ways to tackle that. So uh, primarily, you can think of all of our clients as either single team firms that are smaller. You can think twenty to forty operators that all work together, or a larger uh, kind of conglomerate security firms. Uh, and these work in a variety of different environments, and they employ thousands and thousands. People. So we're kind of taking a two-pronged approach in that we're offering free trials for you know 30 to 60 days to these smaller firms so that larger firms can benefit from that uh, to begin with. And then we're offering a kind of uh, our fully featured platform uh, to these larger firms. So they get to benefit from managing their internal data uh, better uh, among multiple teams uh, just to begin with. And then they later benefit from the, the grander ecosystem as more firms are brought into the fold. Yeah. And, Michael, I probably should have started by asking, but I'll just ask it now. Uh, give us a sense of where you are in the, in the process, in the journey uh, as a company. Sure. Great question. So uh, basically, we've been going for about, I want to say, nine months now mm -hmm. uh, since we really did our kind of wrote our first line of code for the platform. Uh, so at this point, we've developed uh, an MVP that we've tried out with uh, several security firms, mainly in the Middle East and North Africa, for kind of one to two week long uh, demonstrations. Uh, we actually had uh, some, some researchers uh, doing uh, electoral co uh, corruption research over in Liberia and Nigeria, uh, use it for three weeks while they were traveling around, and they gave us some great feedback. Uh, but now we're really at the point of uh, raising some more funding to create a fully featured platform that ideally we'd be ready to sell by this August. Mm -hmm. And and just a, a follow-up question, would Atlas, would it be a single shared database for the entire planet of all kinds of threats, or is it sliced geographically and or by the type of data that you're capturing? That's a fantastic question, yeah. Uh, so uh, I suppose primarily uh, you can always filter data. So, for example, if you want to show only nonviolent incidents or violent incidents, uh, that's always an option kind of on the front end. Uh, 
Uh, but most importantly, uh, the data is all relative. So you can think of in the same way, uh, for example, ways functions is that you're getting to see uh, data on the ground that's nearby you. Uh, and that kind of comes down to our what we call our operator-focused mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person we're really trying to serve the most is that that security officer that's on the ground and trying to make decisions on the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're getting uh, you're getting the information that is most relevant to you, so that you won't be overwhelmed when you pull up your phone and are trying to make a quick decision based on uh, threat intelligence. Yeah. All right, Justin. Back to you. So as I I could infer from Michael's. Uh, narrative about the origin story that there's a third guy, Joshua, who is it wasn't able to join us. Tell us, tell us what you guys were doing and what programs you're in and how the three of you got together. Sure, sure. So yeah, so Mike, uh, Michael, and I are, are students here at Penn. Yeah, what in what program? Uh, it's engineering. We're both uh, studying computer science. Computer science. Yes. And in 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 are you in grad school, undergrad, undergrad? Okay, so the two of you are in what year? Juniors. So you two of your juniors yeah, at Penn so, in computer science. Yeah, we okay. we went to high school together as well. Yeah. Actually. Oh wow. So started way back when. Yeah. Uh, took our first computer science class senior year high school. Yeah. Uh, got super interested in cybersecurity. Wow. Actually, so we started teaching ourselves that, and uh, as Mike, I think briefly uh, mentioned, we were in Boston uh, two summers ago, and we were just doing some cybersecurity sort of consulting, penetration testing. So basically, hacking small businesses. And this um, is after your freshman year, yes, basically. Yeah, yes. yeah. So after a freshman year, and uh, we met uh, Joshua, who was uh, operating a uh, private security company in yeah. Boston at the time. And yeah, we we uh, were put in touch and started doing some sort of cyber physical consulting and penetration yeah. testing. So we looked, uh, we did a couple contracts with uh, infrastructure and say like a, a water plant where we would test their cybersecurity, and then him and his people would test their physical security. So they'd break in, we'd hack in. No way. And then yeah. write up a whole report about where their weaknesses were and all that. Um, and then we, uh, yeah, just through kind of talking with him, learning about his experiences, we sort of, sort of uh, came across this, you know, intelligence yeah. intelligence problem yeah. in the security space. Yeah, so let me, let me turn to you, Michael, to follow up on that. So the thing, the, the interesting question for me is, is how... Two juniors in computer science seen here in this leafy campus at the at, in Philadelphia uh, can work on a problem that seems so distant in some ways, both in terms of the lives you're living as well as geography. Maybe talk a little bit about what some of the challenges are uh, in, in doing that. No, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And so I, I suppose primarily it comes down to uh, a lot of meetings with the whole team, uh, certainly with Josh involved, and then also on our advisor board, uh, we actually have a, a Neil Duckworth, who's the, the former head of the United States Marine Corps' uh, intelligence, their human intelligence operations. Uh, so we certainly lean on their, uh, their kind of experience. Uh, both in the field and in an intelligence capacity a lot, because that's what informs uh, a lot of the, the later software development decisions that obviously we then uh, have to make when we're uh, doing that development. But also we try and localize it for ourselves uh, really as much as we can, because uh, not only can this apply to somebody like uh, security overseas, but frankly it can apply to any dangerous area you can, uh, you can imagine. Uh, so uh, in that sense, we're also trying to roll out with uh, local PDs, uh, police departments in, in Boston and Philadelphia, uh, really get it into as many people's hands as we possibly can and get their feedback. Yeah. So maybe I'll maybe I'll turn this one to you, Justin. So, I, you know, in an ideal world, you guys would be seniors, right? You'd just be about to graduate and then you could get sure. on this. So how are you going to navigate that? Because you seem like you're in a spot now where – 
you sort of have to be out there trying some stuff. And it, it just tell us how you're thinking about getting that done. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting situation because you know you always think you can you can work on it uh, right. on the side with the class and all that it doesn't not 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 much gets done. Um, so we'll be working on it in Boston this summer. Yeah. Um, so you are lucky. You've got a you know four month stretch here. Yeah. You can, you can yeah. Hit so in the, in the immediate future, yeah. we have we have a good good sort of stretch, yeah. good good game plan. Yeah. Um, and yeah, moving forward from there, I guess it kind of depends a little bit on on what we're able to accomplish this summer. Yeah. Um, but I think. I think we're we're all kind of ready to to work on this in a in a pretty full capacity. Yeah, and and similar question for you Michael, as you think about fundraising is 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 this going to be an issue do you think the student status or is that a feature? I mean, how do you think about it and how do you navigate it with potential investors? Yeah, I mean that's certainly a, a could be I suppose either a bug or a feature depending on on how you look at it. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a great point because obviously uh, in our minds there are you know kind of financial and scholastic like school centered realities for us uh, that we have to consider going forward uh, into the summer. Uh, so for that reason, we're essentially uh, uh, it definitely comes into play when we're structuring uh, the timeline of our fundraising. So effectively, it would be either uh, raising funding for this next summer and focusing on this, this full time. Uh, we actually already have some some initial funding from uh, from Rough Draft Ventures, and uh, they're fantastic. Uh, and we're trying to increase that round uh, enough that we could actually all work on this full time because uh, we're certainly hitting uh, kind of a critical mass and sort of the, the, the sales and or at least the soft sales aspect of uh, kind of the, the, the traction that we're getting done, that there's there's almost more work than we can handle when a lot of us are part-time. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly a, a, a huge consideration for us, figuring out how that all works out with the company's timeline as well. Yeah, so, Justin, if we turn to the, the feature side of being a student, uh, I suppose one thing is you, no one expects you to cover your living expenses. You're sort of like your parents or, or loans or something. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that part of it. Have you been able to find any resources at, at Penn to support the venture? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this is kind of the, the perfect time to, to pursue something like this because, sure, we, we have our you know, living and expenses all, all kind of covered. Um, thank you, Mom and Dad. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Penn Penn's been pretty great. We've uh, we've gotten some some resources through the Wharton Innovation Fund, um, through through uh, engineering and some uh, just Penn entrepreneurship pitch competitions. There's a lot there's a lot going on yeah. in, the, in the sort of entrepreneurial space. Here. Yeah, what a lot of people don't know, and I don't think it's limited to Penn, but many ventures can founded at Penn might might garner you know as much as fifty thousand dollars over the course of the time there or if they win one of the big prizes even even more that are available to student in cash grants non-dilutive financing available to students so that's something that's not well understood but it is definitely on the feature side of the bug feature uh, mm-hmm. continuum um, well guys we're remarkably we're we're out of time. It was really, really quick, but um, we really are wishing you the best of luck next week in the in the startup challenge, and looking forward to seeing great things from Verstan. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. All right, coming up, I'll speak with the founders of Avrani, the, a luxury clean skincare brand. I'm Carl Ulrich, vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM one thirty two. Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. 
You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.